นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามัสสะA well-trained heart. It is a, a, worth, a verse that's uh, very worth contemplating over and over again. Uh, I think the image works, although not many of us, of course, have a thatched roof these days. Uh, if you do, it's a luxury, and you've probably got a high fire insurance. But uh, even where you could just say a well-tiled roof, because well, as we know here, the number two cottage has not got a well-tiled roof, and so the rain leaks in, and sometimes we have to have a bucket in the office uh, to catch the water as it drips down on the desk, <laughs> and there are consequences. So the image works that uh, something leaks in a way that uh, is not helpful and causes damage, and. So in this case, the image is uh, the passions entering uh, the heart. Now, this can be, and sometimes is, uh, misinterpreted um, as uh, not feeling anything. Uh, the passions do not enter the heart. Well, as always with words, there's some limitations here, and and uh, of course, it's not intended to mean that we don't feel anything. Sometimes religion does come across that way. That uh, if we've been hurt by our feelings, then uh, well, the way to stop being hurt is just just don't feel anything. And, but that's that's kind of like you know if you if you sit on your leg in a certain way you know, for long enough, it goes numb, and then. And then you can take a pin and you can stick it in your leg, and you don't feel anything. Think, well, that's fascinating, isn't that interesting? You know, I don't feel anything. Well, it's, it may be interesting, but there's nothing spiritual about it. And, and likewise, sometimes when people pick up Buddhist meditation practice, they concentrate, concentrate, concentrate hard enough, and then they can end up you know, getting into a state where they don't feel anything. But there's nothing particularly spiritual about that. Uh, because things will change, and eventually you'll start feeling again. And if you feel something that's agreeable, 
then the chances are that there'll be attachment and uh, we'll make a problem out of it. Or if it's something that we don't like, well, then there'll be attachment and we'll make a problem out of it in another way. So uh, this well-trained heart that the passions can't enter is uh, surely it's referring to a way of feeling so that we feel what we feel, but we don't make a problem out of it. Buddhist training, meditation practice is not about not having feelings, um, not having emotions. This regularly happens when suffering from some negative emotion, grief or disappointment. And then you think, well, how can I stop feeling disappointed? Well, another way of looking at it is, how can I feel disappointed without making a problem out of it? Because I think there's always going to be disappointment. I imagine when great enlightened beings uh, find that nobody understands what they're saying, well, there's some disappointment on some level, but there's not suffering. That's the difference. So... This well-trained heart. What is what does training involve? I think. There's many ways of of approaching this. Somebody recently was presenting to me their perspective on it, whereby they they felt that they they didn't want to talk about training or hear talk about training anymore. They thought that the very word training was a problem. And that what we need to talk about is learning. And as we discussed it, it, it became apparent that, that what they were referring to was, was uh, the, uh, the issue of, of where those who are imparting the training are doing so in a way that is uh, less than compassionate or less than wise. And so, again, how we train is very important if we, we can take on the idea that we need to train ourselves and so on. But if we don't go about it in the right way, well, we're not going to get the result that we're looking for. And so personally, I don't have a problem with uh, the concept of training. And in my own life as a monk, uh, what I continually uh, revisit and reconsider is the relationship to the training. It's a lifelong training. That everything, everything that happens is a training. And to turn it around as such, everything is something to learn from. Uh, but how we go about it is very important. I remember hearing a talk by somebody who was uh, describing the difference between training a horse and breaking in a horse. That you can go about it with the attitude that this wild beast has to be broken in. You can approach it with that attitude. And you can do what needs to be done to break it in. But they were saying that, I don't personally have any experience of this, but they were saying that the result of that is very different from the result if you approach the horse with a sense of respect 
for that passion, for that energy. And you develop a relationship that's based on respect. And so the training of the horse with an appreciation for that power, for that passion, that needs to be directed. And so this is how I appreciate the training that we, we give to ourselves. That is, it's like, it's like giving direction to something that we have uh, respect for. We appreciate ourselves, where we are. Yeah. And it's uh, very, very easy to bypass this. It's very easy to engage our creative, active imaginations and come up with some idea about how we should be. And uh, we all know how we shouldn't be. And we keep coming up against it over and over again. But if we are too quick in reacting to ourselves, when we meet ourselves in our limitation, and we, ref we forget to exercise respect and appreciation for this being, where we are now, then whatever we do is actually, there's a risk that it's going to make things worse. So I think, yeah, respect is very important. I was last week or a couple of weeks ago at the, at the Katina ceremony, I think I was talking about the preparation of the cloth. Those of you who are here were talking about the preparation of the cloth for the dying. And, and part of the preparation for us, in, uh, I was using it as a metaphor for, for practice, and part of the preparation for us in, in, in going deeper in our practice is the cultivation of a heart of appreciation. And so if we approach our training with the precepts or, or the meditation with a sense of respecting this, this person. Many of those people who have been responsible in the past for so-called training us or teaching us have not necessarily appreciated this person, not necessarily seen this person. And so there's always the risk that we've internalized these these less than adequate sometimes examples of authority out there in the world. And so we can be operating from a place of a bit of a tyrant within ourselves. So it's always going on at ourselves about how hopeless we are, how inadequate we are, and how we should be this way and we shouldn't be that way. And that's not a heart of appreciation. That's not imparting training with appreciation or with respect. And so there's a certain sort of even brutality about that. Yeah. But also training, it's like, it's like when you train a plant, you know, like we have various vines out here on the pergola. I don't know all the different vines that are out there, but there's various different plants going over the pergola. And, and if they're not trained, well, sometimes they go off in any old direction and they get lost and they just become a tangled mess. Whereas if a little bit of giving of direction... Which is a little bit of giving a direction. You don't you don't go about it forcefully. If you go about it forcefully, you break them, you break the uh, the plant. Yeah. You don't give it any direction. Well, then it becomes a tangled mess. So if you give it the right direction with the right effort, then it finds the pole to go up, and then it actually goes in the right direction in a beneficial direction. Yeah. 
if you don't give it any direction at all, it just, as I said, it just becomes a big tangled mess and it ends up eventually uh, climbing all over the Buddha image out there and you can't see anything, you can't even sit in there anymore. So, so I suggest this, uh, this image of, of training uh, as a way of trying to help us get the right attitude uh, towards it. Like, you know, with regards to the precepts, I undertake the training to refrain from killing loving beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the training to refrain from irresponsible sexuality. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. I undertake the training to refrain from consuming uh, intoxicants. And as we say this, you say, I undertake the training. We, we submit ourselves to these guidelines that are giving direction to the passion, to the human passion. Now, maybe this verse should say uh, the unruly passions. You know, As the rain cannot enter a well-thatched roof, so the unruly passions or untamed passions cannot enter a well-trained heart. It's not passions themselves. It's not the height energy itself that is the problem, but it's the unruliness or the untamedness of it. Now, this is also very important. That, you know, sometimes you're getting angry or lustful or, or resentful or anxious and, and we, can, we can project onto the mood itself our resentment. As I said before, trying to stop having any feelings. But the heart energy itself, that's, that's what we've got. That's our heart energy. The fact that it's being, for instance, kidnapped or seduced in some way that is leading us to suffer, well, that's what we need to reflect on. Say, well, do I want my heart energy to manifest in this way? We have this choice. Do I want my heart energy to manifest as lust? And it doesn't have to be lust for some gross, inappropriate, sensual desire. I was saying to uh, somebody this morning how I didn't sleep very well last night because I allowed in my meditation fantasies to come up of the water feature that's going to go in the garden down at uh, the guest house. Uh, there's somebody who's very generously wanting to sponsor uh, the meditation garden. And I had dropped the idea of a water feature. I thought, no, it's too complicated, too expensive. And so although I thought it would be very nice in a meditation garden, I dropped it. Well, then the the supporter mentioned a couple of weeks ago that she would really like a very simple little water feature there. Well, that opened up all sorts of possibilities, which I managed to forget about because the last two weeks have been busy with traveling and doing other things. But then I get back to the monastery here and I see that space again and and we have Ajahn Go here as an exceedingly good stone waller. And, uh, and then, of course, all the fantasies start up. And I just let my mind, just for a brief moment, kind of indulge in the pleasure of imagining this water feature. And off it went. And to try and pull it back, it wasn't easy. Because that's, that's the way my mind goes. It just loves fantasizing about such things. There's a real pleasure in it. I think, well, this is harmless enough. But then when I went to bed, I couldn't sleep very well all night. I was having dreams about Ajahn Go building this water feature in the garden. And, um, 
That's the passion. You know, we can think it as beautiful and wonderful and creative, but if we don't understand it, if we don't understand how it needs to be directive, I mean, it's the same with, you know, even the, the love for understanding. You know, you can get into a particular vein of thinking about something, you know, thinking about reality. And, and you can just, you know, follow some philosophical argument. And, and, but it, it's, and actually it can be just another form of lust. And you can drive yourself nuts doing it. You're really getting, a, getting lost in the passion. So this is the thing. The, the, the passions, like the passion of a horse, if it's not tamed or not trained, well, then you can't ride the horse. Well, that might be nice just to see the horse wild, run wild across the countryside. That's great. But if you want to have a relationship with the horse, you want to you know, use the horse to tow the buggy or get somewhere, whatever, well, then you've got to engage it in a different way. You've got to come to an understanding. And it's got to be a, a physical understanding. And so it is with the passions. It's got to be a physical understanding. That's why this rightly trained heart of ours is not just some split-off abstraction of our being you know, this is the core of our being this is the core of the whole body mind a well trained heart is actually uh, an unobstructed relationship with the core of our being an unobstructed relationship with the core of our being we can't bypass the body so this rightly trained being has to involve the whole body mind there's another um, well, there's many verses in the Dhammapada where the, the Buddha uh, refers to the body. Verse thing, 293, where he says, Confusion ceases when we maintain a meditation practice focused on the body. Big surprise. We thought confusion ceases if we think about our problems. No, we say, well, you know, we've got confusion, so what do we do? We think. And we think if we think long enough, then we'll stop feeling confused. Well, what the Buddha says, confusion ceases if we maintain a meditation practice focused on the body. And we refrain from doing things which should not be done, and we mindfully do things which should be done. So again, it's a whole, you know, as the Buddha, in balanced, beautiful way, gives a whole body-mind training, you know, refraining from doing things which should not be done with body and speech and mindfully doing things which should be done with body and speech. Yeah. Maintaining a meditation practice focused on the body. So this has actually profound consequences. It does really require an enormous renunciation. Yeah. We, have to, we have to stop getting off on looking at ourselves in the mirror, which is what we're doing when we're thinking a lot of the time. We have this image of ourselves, me. I'm like this and I'm like that and I should be this way and I shouldn't be that way and I compare myself to this person, I compare myself to that person, I compare myself to how I used to be in the past. Is this really myself I'm comparing myself with? No. This is an image of myself. This is not really who and what I am. So we have these images of ourselves that we just rearrange all the time. And we become incredibly fascinated with them. And it can be really difficult to let go of this fascination we have with ourselves. So when the Buddha said that we have to 
train ourselves or that our self is our true refuge, atahiyatano nato, kohinato parosita, one's self is one's own refuge, how could anybody else be our refuge? Of course, he wasn't talking about this image we have of ourselves, which is the ego, in common parlance, the language we use these days, is constructed image we have of ourselves. It wasn't a matter of polishing and changing and tweaking and altering this uh, fabrication that we are mistakenly identified with, but giving an indication of the direction of our training. You know, we have to train ourselves. We have to, oneself as one's own refuge. It's like, it's, it's contradicting the normal orientation of our attention. When there's something, when I'm suffering or it feels like there's something wrong or something that I don't like is happening, or you know, what do we do? But the, ten, the, ten, the tendency is for the attention to go out. Yeah. Go out in our thinking about the past. What did I do in the past that brought this about? What did somebody else do in the past that brought this about? Or how is it going to be in the future so it won't be like this? How can I change somebody else so that they won't be like this in the future? That's, that's easy to do, isn't it? What's it like to not send our heart energy, our passion out into the past, into the future, into others, into the world, what sort of effort is that? Now, I think this is what's being referred to when the Buddha says we have to train ourselves. It's like this directing attention to the place where we can make a difference. So long as our attention is going out, it's caught up in the activity, isn't it? This mental activity, we, you know, we call the past, it's just mental activity. The past doesn't exist, really. Yeah. Or the future. This image we have of ourselves of how we should be, or how we could be, might be in the future. You know, the future, in reality, the future doesn't exist. The ideas we have, yes, they exist, but they only exist in terms of movement in our minds, here and now. So, of course, you know, the Buddha wasn't saying that we, you know, we, we stop having memories or we stop having fantasies or, you know, speculating about the future. I mean, there's a time and place for that. However, for these things to be really useful, for reflecting on the past to be very useful, or to engaging speculation about the future to be really useful, it's essential for us to recognize the reality of these things. And to recognize the reality of things, first we've got to let go of them. You've got to come back here and feel in the body this moment. You know, like today somebody was, we had a meeting after the meals, a whole group of people together, mostly young parents. We're talking about life, as usual, suffering, as usual. <laughs> and uh, so 
we're talking about what the Buddha had to say about this and that and so on. And, and then it, it came back to, but what do you do with your children when they misbehave? And in fact, I'd already been saying that, that there's the theory of practice and the practice of practice. And if all we've got is a theory of practice, well, it's never going to be enough. We need to engage in the practice of practice and be able to meet ourselves in the moment when we're doing whatever it is we're doing, which creates suffering. So we'd been going over this for quite a long time. And so then this person asked, them, what do you do when your children misbehave? As if that's somehow a different situation. But it's not a different situation. That's the same situation. That's the situation that happens over and over again. Basically, when I don't get my way, something happens here whereby I create a problem. Now, it could be that you know, I listen to something on the radio or I watch something on the television or I observe something in the world or I get a bad report from the doctor or my boss says something or, or the children misbehave. I mean, all of them are basically all the same thing. From the perspective of training, when there's that experience that we call frustration, suffering, disappointment, Sadness, all those when there's that experience here and now, and it's a passion, isn't it? It's a passion there. Yeah. If there's no passion, well, it's not really a problem. But when we, when we, when, when there's that passionate upthrust of energy that causes us to suffer, how do we meet it? That's the training. That's the training. How do we meet it? Are we prepared to be there in that moment? You know, your child does something that you don't like and there's that feeling of, it shouldn't be that way. After all these years, after all I've done for them. Well, yes, it can be very, very disappointing. And this happens you know, sometimes with children, with friends, you know, sometimes with partners, there can be a very deep and, and very, very painful experience of betrayal of disappointment, not a small thing. Um, but, in essence, the training is still the same. Is there a way whereby we can receive these passions that flare up so that they don't invade our hearts? And by that means that they don't take over. We can't stop the rain, we can't stop the snow, we can't stop having the feelings. But what we, what we don't want is for the rain or the snow to get in. What we don't want is for those passions to actually take over the heart yeah. so that we get lost, so that we get confused. Yeah. So the training in here and now, whole body mind, judgment-free awareness, so that when the passions flare up, we don't avoid it. You know, the habits are to avoid it or to indulge it. I mean, most of us know that indulging in, in these habits is, is not the way, you know, thumping people and kicking people. And, or as I heedlessly said to the katina, kicking the cat, 
that was a really bad example, and I apologise to anybody who, you know, I was not in any way suggesting that that was justified. In no way is it justified kicking the cat. Um, you know, we all realise that acting out on our passions is, is not the way. But we perhaps don't all recognise that there's other ways that we have of avoiding. You know, we're not indulging, but maybe we're avoiding in other ways by in, engaging in these mental pro proliferations where we project, we blame. We blame the past, our past. We blame our parents. We blame the world. We blame religion that religion is the cause for all the problems in the world. And that's another way of avoiding it. And we have to be really, really honest with ourselves, recognizing indulgence, recognizing avoidance. Both ways lead to suffering. As the Buddha's very first discourse, the turning of the wheel of the Lord, the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, Kama Sukhanikani Yogo, Atagilamatana Yogo, indulging in pleasure and denying pleasure, yeah. indulging in pain, both of these extremes, he said, lead to suffering. But then he said there is the middle way. And the middle way is that training of awareness so that we're present in the moment with what's happening and we don't split off into taking position for or against our experience. But that is a training. It's a training we can do. We can train our attention so as we don't indulge and so we don't avoid. Yeah. And it's something we can do in daily life when our children don't do what we want or the weather is not how we like it and we have moods that we don't particularly like, we can, we can be there for it, we can reflect on it, so we've got a choice, you can indulge in this, you can avoid this, or you can just know it as a whole body-mind experience here and now. So in a daily life we can train ourselves with, to be present without adding anything to it, without taking anything away from it, being with a just-so experience, or we can train in formal practice. And this is also profoundly important, the, the power of mindfulness training cannot be exaggerated. Yeah. Probably most of us have experiences of, of the struggle of getting caught up in, in habits. If not physical habits, then mental habits or verbal habits. Some sort of habits which cause us to suffer. And probably of all these habits, the mental habits are the worst ones, you know, the subtle ones, you know. The gross ones of body and speech, we can perhaps manage to restrain ourselves. But the mental habits are so difficult, so difficult, they are so subtle and so deep and so devious. And without right training, we're probably not going to be able to release out of them. And yet, if we do appreciate this possibility of training, of attention, of mindfulness in the here and now, then there is something we can do about it. You know, informal practice, sitting there, and here it comes again, that mind state or that emotional state that trips us up, that we get sucked into, that we become. And no act of willful repression or avoidance does the trick. 
we've tried it. Yeah. And yet, with mindfulness practice, with a meditation practice, focused on the body, if we train ourselves with attention, with awareness, to be with the body, yeah. in the moment that the passions are arising, they can make a profound difference. So to run through that again, you know, you, something comes up that you really don't want. You've been tripped up in the past, and it comes up. It's starting to come up, and then, and then, in the mind, you say, "Oh God, here it comes again. Oh no, here we go again. I know what happened last time. I got lost in the last time. All the stories start going. That's the point. We remember. Come back to the body. Right at that moment, come back to the body. Now, if we haven't prepared ourselves beforehand, then we probably can't do it. Yeah, when you one of those passionate, powerful upthrusts of, of heart energy. Remember, it's not the heart energy that's a problem, it's the lack of training. It's the unruly nature of these passions that's a problem. Like that beautiful horse, it might kick you in the teeth if it's not been trained. Yeah. But once it's been trained, you'll have a beautiful, wonderful relationship with that horse. You know, for people who know about these things, I'm told that if, it, if a horse is trained in the right way, then if you, for instance, fall off the horse... You know, the horse will go away and find somebody and bring them, bring them back and help you. I mean, that's the nature of the relationship of a well-trained horse. Yeah. When the passions are rightly trained, they will serve our commitment to Dhamma. The passions will serve us. The passions will teach us. The passions are not the problem. Yeah. The lack of mindfulness is the cause of the problem. So in the moment that the passions flare up, we don't allow that tendency to get sucked into becoming we don't judge it or condemn it or repress it or deny it or judge it or anything else we just restrain ourselves inhibit that tendency as they teach you in Alexander training inhibit the habit to contract well likewise on the heart level we can inhibit that tendency and rather come back to the body and the, 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 the useful thing to do with regards to this is to, to train our awareness in formal practice to focus on the body. Now, you can do it with the breathing, mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. Mindfulness of breathing, not just concentration on breathing. You know, this is a training in awareness. Or you can do it with some other part of the body, like feeling your feet on the ground. The feet are a good object, actually, because you know, they take you out of your head. Yeah. Or maybe the, <clears throat> the feeling of your hand, the, the sensation of your right hand. Train your attention to be in your hand, the feeling of your hand on your lap, yeah. or your foot on the floor, or some aspect of the body to, to train ourselves beforehand with this intimate familiarity with the body, and then in the moment that the passions flare up and we're about to get lost into a habit of grasping and becoming, being born as that miserable, suffering person again that we have to endure and then eventually die out of. Yeah. Instead of that, we come back to the body, yeah, to the simple awareness. And, and as I said before, it does involve a real gesture of renunciation because we just love looking at ourselves and worrying about our problems and thinking about things. Yeah, but it doesn't get us anywhere except for more confused and more tangled. But having said that, it's not a matter of taking a position against thinking either. 
uh, said before, you know, there is a time and a lot of benefit for being able to think about the past and to be able to think about the future. But it's how we think that matters. If we think with grasping, with attachment, well, then we get pulled into becoming again. If we can think and contemplate with some equanimity, maintaining a whole body awareness here and now, then we can usefully contemplate the past or the future. And just to say, before I finish that, that point, about its awareness that we're training and not concentration. Because yeah. many times people make this mistake with, with the uh, practice of mindfulness of breathing to establish a, an, a, an appreciation of the sensation of the body breathing. It's really helpful. But if what we do is we just concentrate on the sensation of the body breathing, you know, like you get the point of the nostril or any other point where it's very, you can get a sensation and you focus, 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 and you become really, really refined, and then bless. Goodbye, cruel world. <laughs> I don't have to feel anything. Oh, what a relief. Yeah, I hated the world anyway. It's a, but it's conditioned. That's a, that's a conditioned, blissful experience. And... Uh, if in the process of arriving at bliss we've bypassed all sorts of other aspects of our being, well, the chances are we're going to have to come back and deal with them some other time. And whereas in <clears throat> an occasional dose of bliss is actually very good for us, it's really refreshing and cleansing and, and conduces to insight, that's not the point of mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. That's concentration on focused effort. And yes, it can be productive, but it's important to, it's essential to appreciate the mindfulness, the awareness of breathing is the point. And that's quite different. So personally, when I teach meditation these days, I, I very rarely encourage people to concentrate. What I encourage them to do is to be aware of the whole body. And you've probably heard me go through this many, many times, the five points, the top of the head, tip of the tongue, the shoulders, the belly, and the seat, these five points. Go down and up, down and up, and visualizing these points and, and making this as an exercise we can come back to over and over again. And with this training the whole body awareness, we're in a much better position that when we are faced with this informal practice or an everyday life practice, we encounter an upthrust of the passions, we're there for it. We're going to, it's going to be training. Yeah. Uh, feeling angry is training. Feeling lust is training. Uh, feeling anxiety is training. Everything is training if we approach it in the appropriate way. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs>